Well, good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. His, uh, he is worthy, amen. Our Lord is amazing. And uh, we are going to be talking a little bit more about him. We're in a series here called The God Hypothesis, and it's based on a book. Uh, this isn't my inventing all this stuff. This is a, a book by uh, Stephen Meyer called The Return of the God Hypothesis. If any of you were interested in kind of where the, di- where the information comes from, this and a few other books in my library as I've been reading through all these things over the years and kind of distilling it down to give you guys a conversation about God and science and showing you there's not a conflict that we have to fear or worry about when it comes to these things. But in fact, there is a a unity, a combination that hopefully is encouraging you guys. I really do think the future in the church, we should have more Christians who are scientists than ever. Amen, church? I mean, in the way the things are going, I I really do do hope and believe in that. But before we move into that, I I do want to talk to you about something. How many of you have noticed Starbucks is uh, taking longer to get you their coffee? Anybody notice that lately? And, And their attitudes are a lot worse than they used to be. It's not like Greg, it's like, Greg, coffee. And it's like, and that's because they're underemployed. They've got everybody around, you know, is, is seeking work and people are overworked and, and they're busy. And uh, one of my fears for our holiday season is that's how we'll end up greeting everybody at all our Christmas stuff because uh, we need volunteers too. And uh, I don't want to, we got volunteers who work every Sunday. They work tirelessly to care for your kids, to say hi to you, to get you guys what you need to, um, to lead worship, all these pieces. And to be honest, uh, during the holiday season, it gets to where we need, especially in the Christmas time, and I mean like why I call holiday season, like Christmas goes for like three to four weeks long for us, with all kinds of things. And so while we're doing all of our Christmas events you're going to hear about, we need people who are willing to greet, people who are willing to help with kids, willing to touch uh, and connect and bring the hospitality of the church. We need people for online things. So even if you're at home, there's things to do if you're outside. We just want to enable um, everyone who comes during this season to feel loved, connected, and encouraged. And so that comes from you guys. That's going to be the main thing. So if you're interested in helping us out, we do, we need you. We're going to have some uh, coming information this weekend. You can check out uh, some of that will be online. And we just really want to ask that you'd step into spots as uh, there's just still lots of holes in a lot of locations. And so just really appreciate you um, even considering it. And so as we step forward, though, I would like to pray as we close out the series. Would you join with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I just um, love how music um, opens our hearts, our souls to, uh, to feel and think at the same time about you. And we just, uh, we know you're worthy. You're an incredible God, incredibly intelligent, incredibly resourceful, and, and it's all from within yourself. It's mind-blowing, and uh, the more we think about it, the more sometimes we don't even we don't even grasp what we don't grasp. It's just so huge. And we thank you for what you've given us in just this series. Ask that it would uh, land uh, into our minds for anyone who's more scientifically minded that would encourage them. God, for those who may be atheists or agnostics listening, that it might lean them towards you a little bit closer. For those of us who are fearful of science, is that maybe it would bring us back in to, uh, to consider your creation and what you've made. Well, Lord, we thank you for this and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. All God's children said, Amen. Well, I think it's been proven in this entire series that I am absolutely a nerd. Anybody had any question about that one? Uh, okay, good. So everybody's like, nope, no questions at all. All right. So yeah, I did three entire sermons. I could have probably done an entire year. But uh, talking about science is one of those things I love because I was one of those honors kids, geek here in Corona High School. And I had a friend that just gave me my bona fides and nerddom. He walked up to me and he handed me his graphing calculator. And you guys, everybody remember your graphing calculator? 
years. Uh, some of you guys are like, didn't have them, but new, some of you guys did. I had the TI-81 or the TI-84. They were kind of the newest ones on the market, bright blue. And, and if nobody knew this, but there was a section in there that you could actually like code to do like um, actual like real coding. And this friend of mine walks up and hands me his graphing calculator and says, check this out. And right there, I worked through this like choose your own adventure he wrote into his graphing calculator. I'm like, that's so cool. How did you do that? And he proceeded to show me how to do like little coding within like computer coding within the graphing calculator. And so I proceeded to take his code that he, he gave to me and I turned it into a full-blown role-playing game where you could run down and, and have like level up and fight monsters that appeared on your screen and go through an entire story. Yes, nerd, I told you, it's, 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 it's absolutely sealed. But what I realized in that little venture of playing around with some computer coding is that, man, we have some geniuses out there who are making stuff. I mean, think about what's around you right now. With the amplification, we've got computer code that's allowing these, um, these very projectors to shine the very, uh, you know, all, these, all this information on the screen that was made by computers, that was coded by somebody. You have all this code all over the place exploding constantly. You have all these minds working and building, and it takes a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and a lot of intention to design out just the stuff that we have that's available on your phone that you're checking the score on right now. You know I'm saying? And for all of you at home, you only get to watch this because of those computer coders and the things that are going on in our world of computer science. I find it fascinating because when we talk about today, I'm going to talk about something that's even more mind-blowing than the computer science that we have today. And I think it's going to be something that will drag you uh, into a zone of science that maybe many of us feared throughout and just said, I'm never thinking about it again. Uh, I just have faith. I'm good with it. I'm walking away. And that in this God hypothesis, I think we're going to try to venture into the hardest category that seems to fight against the church. But before we do that, I want to remind you, we've already kind of talked about two big areas in the God hypothesis. And that was the first one, which was, if you haven't, if you haven't been with us, first one was talking about the Big Bang. The idea that the Big Bang says there's actually not just a beginning to the universe, but a beginning to time and space and matter. Everything had this beginning point that we know that had to come from a someone. It comes from a mind with all it's in all of these personal reality of cause. And you can go back and watch that. But then the second one last week was we talked about that there's this sense that the God hypothesis says there needs to be word. There's this sense that God speaks and this word moves and suddenly it keeps order in the universe. And we looked into the beginning we saw there's these constants and this fine tuning and these laws of physics that determine order about everything. And if you had a multiverse or some other thing, it destroys science. It, in fact, erases the ability to have order. And so it again, added to the high probability that God not only exists, but he created this universe. And yet with all the other evidence we were talking about, all the other pieces we're putting together, again, I'll, I'll tell you, go back and, and watch the previous sermons. But the question is, why don't then scientists hold to God more often? Why is God, when breathed quietly among scientists, like a cuss word? You know, why are they so scared of the concept? What keeps them from saying, yes, there's clearly a God? And the answer is more of a story answer. And so let me start here back in the 1700s where pretty much the entire culture understood the idea in Psalm 146. They would all have agreed that blessed is he whose hope is in the help of the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, of the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The concept being that you can hope in this God, you can trust in this God, because he is the creator God who made everything and put everything in it. 
Now, we've already talked about the fact that they thought through this as like, well, then if God's made this and there's an order to the universe, then there must be some order to find. And so they went out into the universe and they did indeed. They found the laws of physics. They found order in the universe. And we see that, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. But what about what's in them? What about the animals? And invariably, they would make an argument like this when it came to animals that surround us and you and me as human beings. They would talk about the fact that you'd walk upon a, a seashore and as you were walking across the sand, suddenly you saw in that water and the tide rolling in a watch. And you'd pick up that watch and you'd look at it and you would not ask, wow, how did the rolling of the tide and the movements of the sand and the erosion and all the, all the different things that go on here on this beach create this watch? This is incredible. That's a ridiculous answer. Everybody knew you picked up the watch and you'd go, whose watch is this? And you'd flip it over and you'd find the manufacturer's name and you'd see who had thought through the intricacies of every little spring, every little coil, every little toothed gear and sprocket. And you'd go, wow, this thing is designed. And I said, that's exactly what you find when you look at the animals around the world. Well, slowly this argument, we call the design argument, began to disintegrate. Starting in the late 1700s, I mean, who is making, first before we go there, who is making these kind of arguments? Well, none other than a man named Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton actually was a Christian. He held to the belief in a God. He actually was a bad theologian, but an excellent scientist. Don't read his theology book. It's not that good. But his, um, his, his physics is still incredible in what he came up with. And people think Isaac Newton was this atheist. No, he was a Christian. And the man was arguing the design argument that God existed behind the universe. And this challenged people. So how did we go from, from Isaac Newton? Well, a man named Voltaire, he's a French philosopher. And by the way, I'm going to point out philosophers. You know, they're not scientists, they're philosophers. Everyone in the 1700s that was a scientist was a philosopher. They were called natural philosophers. In fact, scientist was a joke. They would throw the name at people because, oh, you're all into science, all into knowledge. You're just a knowledgeist is what the word means. But it's stuck and we use scientists today. Now, the next natural philosopher, one of those philosophers' names was Voltaire. Now, Voltaire lives in the, lived in the time, it was a French philosopher. He actually believed that Christianity would vanish within 100 years of his lifetime. He was very confident that human reason could, could win. He was an enlightenment philosopher. And he looked at all the scientific ventures that were going on. And he said, listen, I know lots of people who don't believe in God. And you don't need to in order to do science. We will continue to move forward with logic and wonder and all this stuff. And we will understand it. God is irrelevant to the function of science. In fact, he argued, you shouldn't use God in science because it's actually causing us not to move forward. He didn't really stick real well, but his ideas stuck with other people. And so as philosophers continued, like a man named Hume, David Hume was a skeptic. I mean, this guy was so skeptical when people said, look, you could see pool balls, hit pool balls. He's like, you don't know if there's demons moving pool balls or what. He was so skeptical about everything. And Hume, the skeptic, actually stepped in and argued that, look, miracles can't happen. I mean, look at Isaac Newton. He says, Isaac Newton's laws of physics show us there's these laws of physics. And God can't break his own laws or he's a sinner. Therefore, we know miracles can't happen because, listen, you have laws and they're inviolable. Besides, we know there are no miracles that have happened, so we don't see any, so they didn't happen. Everybody who's seen them, we can't trust them anyway. And these were basically his arguments. Now, to, to this point, Hume has been soundly re refuted in the philosophical world, but he, at his time, it was an extremely strong argument. In fact, so strong, it led people to back out and begin to look at the world as a, what they would call a deist. 
A deist is somebody who believes in a God, but they don't believe that God works in the actual world around us. He just kind of wound it up, let it go, and walked away, let the clock run. Now, he may be there at the end, and there was different debates, and we all know our deists in the United States, but he's, this man is the background of that. Now, as you continued on, you end up with another philosopher who also was reading and looking at Newton's stuff, and his name was Kant. Now, Immanuel Kant actually would come into the picture, and he would make this argument. According to Newton's laws of gravity, everything should be coming together because everything's attracted to each other. So he says, what is keeping it apart? The whole universe should collapse in together. And therefore, he said, the logical argument must be the universe is infinite and matter is spread out equally into all of the universe. And at this point, the natural philosophers began to abandon the concept of the need for God. Because if you had an infinite universe, you had infinite amount of time. If you had infinite amount of time, there was no need for God. And the stage was set with the exception of the strange intricacies you found within all these animals. How do you get all these different kinds of animals with all these ecosystems and things like this? We just don't explain this. Sure, the universe, we all agree, is infinite and mass is equally distributed, but, but how do you get this stuff? And now you know the setting for the man that we all uh, love to hate as the church, uh, or I mean, that's the joke anyway, Darwin, right? I mean, I need to say that, otherwise I would have said Darwin, everybody would have been, boo. Well, hold on, say, right? Darwin's interesting because Darwin's living in a time period where the question is really, how do you get these animals? If the, if the universe is infinite, we don't need God, which was the assumptions that were beginning. Darwin also, who didn't really want a God in his life, began to look around at all the different animals that were being kind of breeded and changed. Like, look at your dogs, for example. Does anybody have like a chihuahua? Anybody own a chihuahua? Praise God. It's like nobody's raising their hands. I love this. Anyway, sorry. Um, chihuahuas, which are just snacks in the future, uh, are, uh, these, uh, these little dogs are tiny, right? They, they sit there and they shiver. And it's like, oh my gosh. And then some of my sisters showed me her Great Dane, which is like, that's a dog. Holy cow. Some of you guys might have pit bulls. They're all coming from the same stock. They all come from wolves. How do you get the chihuahua to the, you know, the big old pit bull? I mean, like, that's a big difference. And Darwin's like, look, look, we do this. We select what we want in the animal and then we breed in that direction. It's what we do with horses. It's what we do with all kinds of animals. And so he says, this is called artificial selection. And so what Darwin did is he stood back and he said, we do this with artificial selection and get all kinds of looking creatures. Guess what we should be able to do then? You, you can think of a scenario where one of these changes happens randomly and nature selects it out because the animal is able to survive better. And he came up with the concept of natural selection. And natural selection, like, or as unlike artificial selection, has no mind behind it. Given enough time, given enough changes, given enough survival situations, these animals that you see are the best adapted to their environments they live in. And that's what we were taught in school. Everybody agree with me? That's what we were, we were taught. Now, what's interesting about Darwin is as he teaches this, it becomes extremely fashionable. And it especially becomes extremely fashionable after two other people that we don't ever talk about. Namely, these two characters, one's named William Draper on the left and Andrew Dixon White. They pretty much finalize the death of the design argument when they write about five or six books all on the history of science. And in those five or six books, they decry and declare how the church has always been opposed to science. They revise the entire history, changing who Newton was. You believe Copernicus and the church were against each other? They weren't. Galileo and the church? Nope. These guys made this up. It's become common history and knowledge, but they did, created the God versus science divide. 
became so common knowledge, became part of the very scientific literature and curriculum and the dogma that they had believed. And so that now when you do science, you cannot invoke God or you are literally breaking, quote, their rules of science. The problem is the science is breaking down their argument. The design argument is back because when you dive in and you look, guess what? Kant was wrong. The universe isn't infinite. It's finite. It has a beginning and it's finally designed. It's not apparently designed. It is designed. And science wasn't against the church. The church is backing science constantly. And now we get to this situation. We go, well, what about Darwin? I mean, that seemed, everybody tells me this is it. You take a biology class. Now we're going to stop here. And this is the one we're going to look at today. Because what does the guide hypothesis say about what we should expect when we look at life? And what does the naturalist or the materialist hypothesis say? And well, the God hypothesis is pretty clear. It, should, it says that life should appear suddenly with complexity. At least that's the, that's the best way. We call it fiat creation. Now, let me explain this for a minute um, because we're about, to, we're about to see where this comes from and, and you've got to get your Bible ready because you're going to go to Genesis. So open up. We're going to read the entire book of Genesis this morning. That's going to take about seven hours. Um, uh, Genesis 1, that's what it should say. So open up to Genesis chapter 1. And what you're going to see is this argument. Now, Genesis chapter one is one of the most argued chapters in and out of the church. You realize that, right? There are so many arguments and divisions over this chapter. Let me just address that really quickly before we move forward. In the realm of, of orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, in Genesis chapter one, we'll start on, there is a group that would hold that the earth is young, Anywhere between six to 100,000 years old. They call it young earth. And they believe it was created in six days. Everything in a fiat creation. The fiat creation is the boom. The movement of God acting. Everybody believes in that in this zone to some level. The second group believes that, yes, God fiat created, but he made it all appear old. Because when you, when you cut down a tree in the middle of the garden of Eden, you would have found rings in the tree. Because he creates mature things. He doesn't create fake Things. So that, that's a middle argument. Then you have old earthers who are going to claim no science is telling us the truth and the earth is old, but God progressively created through time in moments of action. Call them days, call them ages, and there's all kinds of divides over all that. That all fits in, quote, Genesis chapter one arguments. Now, there are Christians who hold to evolution. I'm going to set them over here. I don't agree, but we can agree to disagree, but, and I'll show you why today. In essence, Genesis chapter one allows for fiat creation, meaning moments where God speaks, infuses order and action into the universe and new things appear. That's what we're seeing in Genesis one at the broadest sense. So if you have it open, let's take a look at this. I'll give you a little bit of a way to, to look at Genesis to see how this hypothesis works together. Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Underline, circle those three words. Without form, or sorry, four words. Without form and void. That means without order and without anything in it. And darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what we see here right at the beginning is the basic framework. You have without form, that means no form, zero form, that's called nothing. It's void. That means it has nothing in it. This is the way they understood it. It was a sense of, disorder and nothingness. And what God will now do is in three days, in this, in three days, he's going to put order. And then in three days, he's going to fill. Now, however you want to read that is a whole other conversation for a whole nother day. But let's start this. Watch the structure. Day one, he makes the light and the dark. He makes 
night and day. Next, day two, he creates the sky and the waters are below, still there. So now he has a separation with the sky. Day three, he creates the land and puts the fruit on, or the trees on it and the plants on it to bear fruit. Guess what he does on day? So now he's formed it. So now he's going to fill it. And so on day four, he fills the light and the dark with the stars, the moon, and the sun. Huh. Guess what he's going to do on day five? He's going to fill the sky with the birds and the flying things and the waters with the swimming things. And then on the last day, he fills the land with the animals and then humanity. Days match, formed, filled. That's the goal. And then on the seventh day, he rests. All right, so we got the structure down. In each one of those movements, we've seen him form. We looked at the Big Bang. We looked at the sudden creation of these environments. What about the fill? Take a look at it. And exactly as he created with the word, all of the environments, he now creates with his word, all these locations as we pick it up here in verse 11. So he's created all of these places. Now he's in the last section of the third day. It says, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So God speaks, suddenly it activates and all of these kinds of plants appear. Notice the word kinds as well shows up quite a bit. Then we go on. So those show up, those sprout. Then he puts the stars in the, in the heavens and the sun and the moon. And then we go down to verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the sea creatures and every living creature that moves. Oh, so it goes, sorry, I skipped down with my eyes. That was weird. Let cre- living creatures let birds fly above the earth and across the the expanse of the heavens. So, and you have this sudden creation infusion of new animals as he speaks. One more time, the same pattern appears again. God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Speech, sudden appearance of kinds of animals of complexity. That's the God hypothesis. What should we expect when we dig into the ground and look back in history? There should be something matching something like that in our minds. Well, the material hypothesis is the Darwin hypothesis. It's this idea that evolution will grow gradually through time. You're going to find one cell organism, then a two celled organism, then a 10 cell organism, then on and on and up and up and up it goes. till you get a multi-celled organism, multi-animals, all kinds of plants. They call it the tree of life. It kind of looks, this is the idea of it there with all of its branches and different directions of things, all growing from one thing, little to big. So we dig into the fossil record and what do we find? What were you told you find? We're all told the same thing. Go to the Smithsonian. You will find, oh, yes, the fossil record tells you this tree of life exists. But does it? I want to introduce you to a paleontologist named Gunther Bentley. And um, I love Gunther. He's uh, an interesting German guy who's, who's done some work. Um, I'm going to show you this video. It's from a, from a uh, group out there called the Discovery Institute. And uh, this is a YouTube video on their science uprising. There's a whole bunch of them. Please ignore the monkey guy fox mask. It's aimed at college students and high school students, but it's got great information. So take a look at this. He'll, he'll explain it better than I ever could. So let's spend some time going through the facts and how evolution explains them all so well. First, fossils. Now, fossils provide really good evidence for evolution. 
and by studying these fossils, we can see how organisms have changed throughout the past, as we're able to see the small incremental changes that took place over millions of years. The farther back we go, the more we see that everything alive has evolved from a single starting point. We're able to see all incremental change. Fossils provide really good evidence for evolution. Yeah, that's what I was taught in school too. But is the fossil record really good evidence for evolution? I asked Dr. Gunter Beckley, a fossil expert. He has discovered 180 new species in the fossil record and published over 160 scientific papers. It is often believed that the fossil record is great support for Darwin's theory. Actually, this is not the case at all. The theory predicts slow changes, but the fossil record shows rapid changes. The theory predicts that new forms accumulate by addition of little small steps, but the fossil record shows they appear out of nothing suddenly. Let's start with the most famous sudden appearance of life forms in geologic history, the Cambrian Explosion. Geologist Casey Luskin explains. Nearly all of the major living animal phyla appear abruptly in the Cambrian period in a geological eye blink, a five to 10 million year window. In the Cambrian explosion, we see many diverse body plans appear without any direct evolutionary precursors. In fact, one invertebrate zoology textbook says that the animal phyla appear fully formed such that the fossil record is of no help to understanding how these species and these diverse body plans arose. But is the Cambrian explosion the exception? Because we usually hear... The fossil record clearly demonstrates that organisms don't suddenly appear. The phenomenon of sudden appearances in the fossil record is not just an exceptional case, but actually is a pattern that is found everywhere. The origin of life, the origin of photosynthesis, the Avalon explosion, the great Ordovician biodiversification event, the Silurio-Devonian terrestrial revolution, the Devonian-Necton revolution, and the Odontote revolution, the Carboniferous insect explosion, the Triassic explosions, the origin of flowering plants, the origin of butterflies, the Neo-Avian revolution of modern birds, the placental mammal radiation, the origin of the genus Homo, and finally, the Upper Paleolithic human revolution. If you were counting, that's 15 revolutions. And it's crazy when time like the butterfly is talking to you like that. Anybody seen Bugs Life? That's all I heard right there was he said, butterflies. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Um, but what I love about Gun what Gunther does is he literally exposes the mythology out there that there's this tree growing. No, it's not a tree of life. There's a forest of life where seemingly these groups suddenly appear, grow, and then die off or keep going in various directions. Think of it as multiple trees coming out of the ground at the same time, not one tree growing. And that's really what the fossil record is showing. What's interesting about all this is that you actually begin to find out that the Cambrian explosion, just start there, below that layer of dirt in the ground that they dig up in various locations up in Canada and out in China, they actually find no multicellular organisms beneath. How do you go from zero to suddenly 70 phyla? Remember, it's anim king kingdom animal phyla. Phyla is a very, it means body shape. 70 different phyla. Then we'll reduce over time down to 30. There were more phyla in the Cambrian explosion than exists today. That is the opposite of what Darwin says should happen. 
There should be one phyla, then four, then maybe 18, and then it grows. No, 70 to 30, that's the opposite. That sounds like a sudden explosion. And what's interesting is this infusion of sudden animals is in all these different 15 kinds of revolutions. Add on to the fact that when you look at this situation, it gets even worse because when you take an animal that's been fossilized and you look at its modern predecessor, they're pretty much the same. In fact, what we find is when the animals appear, they stay constantly similar throughout their entire existence in the fossil record and have very to no change. Well, that's the opposite of what we would expect if it's slow, gradual change. And so when we dive into this situation, we find out that this sounds a lot more like a sudden explosion of life and kinds of creatures. But, you know, there is objections and um, biologists especially will object, hey, we know how all this happens. We know DNA and mutations can make this stuff happen. You see, Watson and Crick uh, discovered DNA, what's at the core of our cells, in 1958. And the double helix and all this cool stuff began to work out as, as they started seeing like, oh my goodness, we know now how evolution works. What happens is you get these mutations in your genetics, which creates changes in the animal form. Build up enough of those and you get new animals and those new animals are taken out by natural selection and boom, you've got evolution. In fact, they say we know the first explosion actually happened from non-life to life. They call it abiogenesis. And they point to several of these various experiments, one of them being the uh, Miller-Urey experiment in 1930. The Miller-Urey experiment, they took what they believed was the composition of the air of the early earth. They put it roughly in a bunch of like test tubes and stuff and then drew an electric current through it to where suddenly the building blocks of life came together. And they went, see, we can bring life about as we, as we're doing these experiments. Then we realized with the age of billions of years to the universe, they're like, that's plenty of time to get all these developments of creatures. In fact, we know why there's no fossil record. Uh, in fact, there are several paleontologists who argued it's called punctuated equilibrium. And punk eek, as it's kind of commonly known, is where small groups of animals got together in a locality or got siphoned off from the big group. And they had this rapid transformation because they were locked away and we lost all their fossil records because they were a small group. We didn't need them. And so you see the sudden changes occurring in that way. And finally, we also know that this stuff works because we have computer programs that have been running all over in simulations across universities around the world that show, and they're, they're literally computer simulations of evolution, and they work. And this is the arguments that's given, but here's the problem. It doesn't work. DNA actually affirms the God hypothesis. Remember, the God hypothesis explosion of all of this new information, this new speaking. God speaks and suddenly something happens. God spoke and you got these laws of physics. You got these constants and a, and a movement of a universe. When God speaks into the, into the animal world, suddenly you have these explosions of animals. And we know that this is an information explosion because of DNA. Do you realize that God, we, we got so into this in the Bible about the, this speaking stuff, they actually would call it the word, right? We've looked at this. And in fact, Jesus would be related to this idea of the word. In the beginning was the logos. That's the word there. It means we would use terms like logic from it. I mean, they thought of it as the ordering one, this one who would order the world. 
In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through the word and without the word was not anything made that was made. Everything is made through the word that exists. Everything seems to have an imprint of informational order on it. In fact, if you talk to information scientists, they'll tell you any form of order includes information. And the more specified, like a language, that order gets, the more an intelligence must be behind it every single time. And when we open the cell, your cells and mine, we suddenly find this thing called DNA. And DNA is just not some random chemical thing. It's literally a digital code in your body. A digital code that is putting together an entire factory city called a cell that can actually reproduce and build its own energy. It's insane what this does. And I don't have the ability to explain it. Also, I'll do one more video for you um, just so you guys get a better idea of it. And they do better at this stuff than I do all the time. So check, take a look at this. Scientists' understanding of biological information advanced dramatically when Cambridge University researchers James Watson and Francis Crick made a startling discovery. They found that the structure of the DNA molecule stores information in the form of a four-character digital code. Strings of precisely sequenced chemicals called nucleotide bases supply the assembly instructions, the information for building the crucial protein molecules that living cells need to survive. Crick later came to realize that the chemical constituents in DNA function like letters in a written language or digital symbols in a section of computer code. Just as English letters convey a particular message depending on their arrangement, the sequences of chemical bases along the spine of the DNA molecule convey precise instructions for building proteins. The arrangement of these bases directs the arrangement of the 20 different kinds of amino acids that make up protein molecules. Proteins, in turn, perform a vast array of critical jobs inside cells, catalyzing reactions, processing genetic information, and forming the structural parts of molecular machines and other biological structures. Building new animals requires many new protein molecules, and building new proteins requires new biological information. As you can see, DNA is not just something that collects mutations. It's your literal code that is lining, that is unzipped. Check this out. It's unzipped by a special protein machine in your cells. Up comes another machine that lines up and, and puts together another line of code. We call it mRNA. Anybody heard of mRNA lately? Anybody you know? It's like, okay, vaccines and all that stuff. So your mRNA comes lining up and it comes off as a mirror copy of what's going on in your DNA. It floats around to your ribosome, which then closes it up and it takes and does that weird, do you see that weird factory process thing where that thing was coming under like ding and this little, those are called amino acids on the bottom. Those amino acids are connected to this, not a messenger RNA, a transfer RNA, a tRNA, and that tRNA locks the mRNA, then locking these little amino acids together at the bottom, sort of like this. It goes, Deek. now, like my hand, there's no reason this particular set should go together like this except for DNA. 
In fact, when you finally have a protein chain, which can be anywhere from 50 upwards to several hundred, they do something called folding. Now, when they fold, they fold into a particular shape that is then taken into the cell, put in with other folded proteins and create a machine that can either you know, open your cell or be a cell wall or whatever. These are all protein folds. And they've asked the question, okay, how does that happen without information? And the answer is they don't know. Douglas Axe, who is a, um, an actual bi um, molecular biologist, did this study. And he said, if we were to take randomly 150 of these amino acids and link them together randomly, would we get a folding protein? And the answer was no. In order to get a folding protein that will work correctly for one appropriately set of folds, one fold, you would have to have 10 to the 77 failures before you got the one. 10 to the 77, that's a 10 with 77 zeros after it. All right, how many cellular organisms have existed in the history of the earth? Biologists say it's only 10, estimate 10 to the 44. We're missing 30 zeros here somewhere or something like that. Guys, that is not enough time, and they all know it, to get one fold. I just checked the other day, the NIH, and I said, how many protein folds are, exist out there? They said, we know of 1,000 different protein folds right now, just for one Average sized amino acids for one, one fold, to be correct, 10 to the 77. That's not including 999 other folds. It is impossible for it to happen randomly, and they know it. And so when you suddenly get into this situation, they know, man, you need information. You have to have this genetics to make this work. You have to have it to come together, which is also why they also are struggling now with the Milliuri experiment. What did they create? What were these building blocks of life they had? They were amino acids and only amino acids. You couldn't shake the amino acids up to get them into a chain. They just sat there in the test tube and that was it. In fact, they fell apart after a certain amount of time because the solutions destroyed them. They didn't make life in a laboratory, even though it's in every single biology text I've ever found. It didn't work. That explosion is still about information. If you're going to get a new body plan, you need new information. Let me give you a simple example of how this works. With all of this crazy amino acid stuff, with all this DNA-coded information that even Bill Gates is amazed at, by the way, and he's a computer programmer, he's like, I ain't never seen a code like this because you can read it forwards and backwards and still get proteins. All this craziness, when he gets down to it, they say, okay, here's the problem. You don't get new animals by random mutation. You need new information. Say, how, well, why? Well, let's take Darwin for a minute. Darwin said that if you, if you put an animal in an environment and it has a change in its body, it will stay because the other animals will die. Some of that is true. Here's the problem, though. It never creates new information. How many of you guys did, ha, took a bio class in high school? Everybody took a bio class? Everybody should have taken them. Did you ever do the old, some of these weird experiments that would take, like my teacher would put down and say, okay, here's a yellow sheet of paper, put it on the, put it in the shoe box, take a yellow piece of paper here and poke holes out of it and a white piece of paper here and poke holes out of that and a red piece of paper over here and poke holes out of that. Put all the holes in there and then shut your eyes, open and poke at the first thing you see. And that's like eating an animal. And inevitably all the yellow dots were left on the bottom because you couldn't see them. He says, oh, see, that's how it works. I say, but here's the problem. Natural selection didn't, invent, didn't make the yellow paper. It didn't make the yellow dots. It didn't even make the white or the black dot. It just, it, we were poking at dots in a box. 
There is already information there. Another way to look at it is this way. How many of you owned a PC in the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s? Anybody? All right. Everybody should have owned something. I mean, even in the late, early 90s, you would have like the, the PS2 and it ran on DOS. Everybody remember MS-DOS, right? C, all that stuff. Okay. Maybe only I did. But the, the, the next one was Windows. And Windows was a revolution because it was a point-click kind of thing. Imagine running Windows, having that computer, and you want to attach a brand new Microsoft digital mouse to that old computer. Is it going to work? No. The code's not there. But just, hey, this is what your Darwinist friend would tell you. Just leave your computer on for the next 100,000 years. Let it get enough, enough code problems in it. Eventually, you'll have a brilliant new video game that'll work with your specially made digital mouse. That's not how information works. The more you shove letters into, random letters into any piece of literature, the more garbledygook you get. The more you shove random information, random, I'm talking about random bits of bits into a computer program, you get errors. The same thing is true in your DNA. The vast majority of mutations are not mutations. They just destroy. In fact, they're taken out by machines that edit your DNA to keep it right. How does it do that? What's interesting about the entirety of this knowledge is that all of this evolution that they claim should happen happens in one, one place, my friends, and it's the womb. All evolution must happen in an egg or a womb of some kind because that is the only place for body plans to change. And what he points out, for this explosion, there's not enough time for any body plans to change because there are these weird little things that go on in, you, in our bodies and in the womb that keep you from getting the wrong body. And they're called regulatory gene networks. Uh, design regulatory gene networks, or DGNRAs, are really weird because they, um, they actually literally, just think of it this way, you came with a Lego book, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Lego instruction manuals have very specific ways of going through them. If you go out of order in a Lego instruction manual and you try to put it together, it isn't going to work. You have to put the right base pieces on first, then the next pieces on. This is how all construction works. Things must go first. And you have an entire regulatory network in your body telling the baby how to be put together. When somebody starts tearing pages out, guess what? Yes, it can be put together, but just like any construction project, it's not as strong. In fact, it's weaker and sicker. And if you start shoving new information, sure, you may get something weird looking, but again, it is not as strong, it is sicker and weaker, and it's not what it was intended to be. And eventually, those don't get, they don't pass on, they don't work. You pull enough papers out and insert enough things, you don't get anything. That's exactly what's going on in the womb. There is so much evidence against evolution right now. Many biologists are having to ask, what do we do about this? Here's the funny thing. It all again comes down to one idea. Whether it's the sugar phosphate code on the edges of your cells or whether it's the DNA information in the midst, the codes themselves, all the, every time you find information, what you will discover is there is an informant. And we believed this once back when scientists were at least decent philosophers. Information comes from minds. You create code. You produce designs. Nature cannot produce the complex specified kinds of things you find in the cell. So much so that we model some of our greatest engineering feats off of what's being discovered in biology. 
And when we start to see this, we start to realize, wait a minute, something got shifted back here. Somewhere, it's not that God got dropped, it's that he got ignored. There's this informant, this one who designed things, this one who put his information and his word into things. And suddenly we see an explosion of life from an input of information from a word, and it lasts for a long time. That's exactly the God hypothesis found in the midst of biology. And when we stop and we see this, here's the interesting thing. There's one other problem. With all the computer and all the little experiments that we're talking about, is that when you have information, there's an informant. James Tour puts it this way. James Tour is probably, he's a Christian. He's an amazing guy. He's, one of, he's uh, won awards for his synthetic chemistry. He's, he's um, got, as they say, more degrees than a compass. And uh, he, he puts it this way. James Tour has concluded that all current scenarios lack plausibility, meaning talking about um, uh, any kind of experiment with chemical evolution, they lack plausibility precisely because they depend on intelligently purified chemical reagents, intelligently designed chemical recipes, and intelligently guided experimental protocols. You go, what did you just say? Let me put it this way. Behind every science experiment ever done, whether producing life, whether producing parts of life, doesn't matter, behind every experiment in a computer or otherwise that's ever been done is one thing, a scientist. And the scientist always informs the information that he's working on. He sets up all of the chemicals. He sets up all the experiment. He turns off the Bunsen burner exactly at the right moment. That is the opposite of evolution. There is always an intelligence behind every experiment done. They can't use scientific experiment to prove the lack of an intelligence. Because where there's information, there's always an informant, my friends. And where there's a design, there's always a designer. We've never found an apparent design. And when we start to realize that there is always an informant and there's always a designer, you suddenly, something should click in your head because every design and with every designer, uh, every design is a designer. Every designer has a purpose. So with every design, there comes a purpose. Where have I been going on all this stuff? One, you can trust God. He's in control. But number two, guys, we live in a culture right now that is wondering who the heck am I? Why am I here? What's my body about? What was I made for? What's my purpose? And it's because we've abandoned the fact that there is one who gave you a purpose. He made you on purpose. The Lord made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. There is nothing in this world that is purposeless. It isn't random. It isn't crazy. Is it completely in the purposes of your God? That's scary and challenging and comforting, depending on what side of the coin you want. If you want to control your life, you want to run it, you want to make your own purpose, you want to say, I'm the captain of my own ship, I am my own, I am my own master, you're going to hate the fact that you are a designed being and every cell of your body is shouting that you were made by someone else. And they have a design for you. That's going to bother you. But it shouldn't if you don't let it. But if you know that God has made you, that he's designed you down to every little bit of who you are, man, that is a comfort. God has a purpose. He has you here for a reason. He hasn't done anything out of an accident. And guys, we should be able to lean into the fact that our God's under control. He's made everything and he knows what he's doing. One step even further, if this God has communicated so much, wouldn't you expect that God to communicate to people through a book that everybody seems to have ability to get a book that has been pretty much around for the 
majority of known history and known history pointing out that this God exists, pointing out the crazy things that happen when this God shows up because he's the creator. He keeps doing creative things. Call those miracles. And this God knowing that we would have struggles tells us all the instructions that we need to know who we are, how he designed us, what this world is about. And he says, I'm not going to leave you without information. I'm the God of information. And you can trust this book. He told you it's him. You say, but what about evil, Greg? I mean, that's not designed in this thing, is it? Or else God's evil. Well, hold on. Here's the thing. God let us do evil. And we commit evil when we step outside of his design. And we start to do it our way. That's when I start telling the God who made me for a purpose. I don't, you don't, I don't care what your purpose is. I want to do it my way. I'm going to treat people the way I want to treat people. I'm going to do the things I want to do. And when that happens, we harm each other and we create sin and we break the world. That's what we did. And God knowing that we would do this. God knowing he had a purpose for us anyways. And God loving us. He came to earth as a human being himself. The creative God who can inform us, came to inform us of how to get out of this mess. And he came and he lived a life. He showed us an ethic. He showed us a way, almost like he was coming in to give us like a brand new reset on the programming, you know, insert new information here. And then on a cross, he bore our sins. He took all of our errors, all of our mess, all of our garbage, and he swallowed it whole, as Paul said, and the wrath of God fell upon him so that we wouldn't face it. And then that day, he dealt with our sin, if you're willing to receive it as a gift. You don't clean it up and make yourself right. You receive it. You don't reprogram yourself. God then begins to reprogram you, transforming you. He comes into your life by his spirit because he rose from the dead to live amongst us and begins to change us every day. We're not perfect, but that change keeps happening as we continue to integrate and walk with him. Now, it starts, though, by receiving the simple gift where he goes, my life for yours, your life for mine. I'll give you all my goodness. You give me all your mess. And that's the offer the God of the universe gave and informed us of through his word. And I want to give you that chance. I don't know why I wouldn't, but uh, if you're at home or you're outside or you're in here today, I want to give you that opportunity to just receive the gift the creator God has given to everyone on earth for free. Did you bow your heads with me? Maybe right now you're ready to receive that gift. And simply talk to God, say, God in heaven, I know that I have not lived the way you wanted me to. And I ask that you'd forgive me because I know you have a way for me. I trust that you came as Jesus to take away my mess and sin. You please forgive me. I trust that as Jesus rose from the dead, you'll make me new too. Will you come into my life now and lead me? Ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things real quick uh, before Paul's going to come up and kind of 
let you guys go. But um, if you did receive that, I want to encourage you. Let somebody know. Don't walk out of here today. There's lots of questions that continue. That's, that's okay. Connect with our prayer team. Use the cards in the back. Uh, make the Use however the bottom of the screen is saying at home. Text or call us. Go out to Connection Central. There's lots of ways we want to connect with you and help you out. We have this thing called Starting Point, which helps kind of walk through that exploration further. We want to give you that chance. Otherwise, man, we're just glad you guys have been with us and we get this opportunity to connect. And I just um, pray that God would bless you guys as you go. Christians, let's not be afraid of the fact that there is some incredible science being done that points us to God. Amen? There's no reason to fear it. We have every opportunity to worship God because he's an amazing, intelligent designer. I hope this has encouraged you guys. Um, Paul's going to let you guys know what else is going on. So come on up, Paul. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. God bless you. <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you.